Hello, welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies, feminism, and sexuality. I'm your host, Chicago Comic, and with us today we have another Chicago Comic, Rachel McCartney. Hello. Hey, Rachel. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, I am Rachel McCartney. I am a regular at the Laugh Factory and a producer of Black Box Comedy out at the Whip Theater. And I've been friends with Kristen for a couple of years, and I'm really excited to do this podcast. Yay, me too. So, Rachel, you started comedy in Chicago, right? Yes. Oh, awesome. I always love meeting people that did that as well. I feel like it's a different experience starting in the city. Yeah, it's kind of brutal when you are (laughs) in a real place where people have this hierarchy and they're friends with people who are funny, and you just start and you have to suck. Yeah, I definitely have that feeling like now seeing like after, you know, it's been a lot of years and you see new crop and new crop come in and I always think to myself, wow, I sucked like this too. Yeah. (laughs) And I still do. It's fun. We have fun. Oh, I don't respond to fishing for compliments. (laughs) You can just sit with what you said. Oh, so what is going on in your life these days? Uh, just doing a lot of shows, working in a restaurant, getting my shift meals, mm. being too happy about it. Mmm, shift meal. I, I love shift meal. <laughs> it makes me so happy. What is your favorite thing to eat for shift meal? Mmm, I go between like three or four things most regularly, but if I had to pick one favorite thing, it would be the mushroom hash. Ooh, It's got like a nice tangy sauce, really great mushrooms. It's delicious with rye bread. Oh, that does sound good. It's real good. Uh, So I'm curious, uh, how do you feel about horror as a genre, Rachel? I have seen so little horror because I think my, um, my assumptions about it as like a teenager and before that were just that it was stupid. Like it was the, um, cinematic version of a roller coaster where there was not going to be any, like, real um, intellectual investment in it. It's just like, and, and I don't enjoy being scared. You know, mm. I, I'm, I'm anxious enough in my normal life. So for that reason, I've barely seen any horror. But um, I actually saw a horror movie about a month ago that I thought was just fantastic. Um, and I, I've also known intellectually that horror is not an automatically stupid genre. It, it's just I've, I've always had, like, a a disinclination from it for probably stupid reasons. What was the movie you saw that you really liked? Uh, It was called Raw. I saw it at a film festival, and it's a French horror movie about a... French horror is scary. It was good. It was really good. About a girl who was raised vegetarian, and then when she's at college, is forced as part of a hazing ritual to eat, like, rabbit heart. Oh, and it awakens in her an insatiable hunger for flesh and then human flesh. But the thing is, like, it sounds ridiculous and it is a ridiculous premise, but it's just, it's portrayed so hyper-realistically, not just in the gore, but in, like, how horrified she is that this is happening and the people she attacks are, like, usually people she loves or has some sort of complicated relationship with and it's like this this metaphor for how we destroy people we love and it's 
it's so good. Oh, and so was, I realize I've probably been missing out on a lot of good stuff. It's so good. Is it? Was it especially gory too? Uh, reportedly, like people vomited, passed out, had to leave at the like initial showing of that. But like my attitude with that stuff is like, yeah, I'm reacting to it in some visceral way. It's it's really gross, but I'll just kind of wait for it to pass and. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it takes something out of you, but it was worth it. Cool, because I have found like a lot of the French horror I've watched is, oof, it's real brutal. <laughs> like, uh-huh. um, but yeah, if that's their thing, I, I respect them for it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, what's the first horror movie you remember seeing? That one. Oh. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, wow. Wow, so you avoided it for a long time. Yeah, that, that's why I had to come into this with a suspense movie. Oh, okay. That the, makes sense. The, the one suspense movie I've seen, and if you would, if action were, were acceptable, I would have been like, oh, let's, let's do Die Hard, the one action movie that I've seen. <laughs> You've seen one action movie? I've probably seen more action movies, but like that's the one that I really remember. I'm not a big movie person. Yeah, I feel that. I uh, I don't normally have the attention span for a lot of movies. Normally people tell me, like, I don't watch horror movies, and they mean, like, oh, they've seen a couple. I don't think I've had a guest that actually has not watched any in their youth, so this is a Bloody Mary first. <laughs> I've, I've watched that one, but this is no longer my youth. Today, for us to talk about, Rachel chose the 2005 film Red Eye which is about Lisa Reisert, a young woman with more than her share of anxieties about flying. However, when circumstances demand she go to Miami, she gathers her nerves and books a seat on a late night flight. Sitting next to her is a handsome and charming man named Jackson, whom she already met in the airport. But once their jet is safely in the air, Lisa discovers he's not the pleasant traveling companion she imagined. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Jackson is part of a terrorist cell plot plotting to kill the head of Homeland Security, and he's decided to draft Lisa into helping him. While Lisa has no interest in abetting Jason's plan, he soon reveals he's holding a trump card. His compatriots are holding Lisa's father hostage and will kill him if she doesn't cooperate. So I'm curious, what made you choose Red Eye? I'd seen it, but (laughs) (coughs) but I also really enjoyed it. I remember when I first saw it, it, it was it was when it came out. So I guess I was actually 15 at the time, 14 or 15. It was the same day, I think, that I saw Team America World Police in the theater. And I was really looking forward to Team America. Mm-hmm. And because I was a little prude, as soon as the sex scene started between the mannequins, I got up and like briefly left. Are you serious? Le- I'm completely serious. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was quite young. <laughs> It's, it's not that it actually offended me. It's that I was, like, I was embarrassed that I was watching it. Does that make sense? <laughs> it kind of does. It does, yeah. Oh, that's funny. So you ended up going over to Red Eye? No, maybe it wasn't the same day. It's, it's I saw those two movies, like, in pretty quick succession. Red Eye was first, and I knew nothing about it, and I really enjoyed it. And then Team America, which I was really expecting to enjoy, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I thought it was really good, and I remember you messaged me before I watched Red Eye again to do this <laughs> podcast. It's pretty bad, but we should have fun talking about it. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> And then I watched it again, and I was like, 
no, I stand by my taste. I think I think this includes some dumb tropes, and it 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 is what it is. But like, it's well done, mm-hmm. and there are aspects to it that are like pretty coded and interesting. Yeah, it is Wes Craven, and you know he makes a lot of good films. And honestly, once I talked to you and started to realize the coding that was happening, then it made me care about the film. But if you don't think about that coding or any metaphor within the plot, it lays really heavily into this sense of patriotism. Um, Because essentially, like, this woman on the plane is being cornered, and because she's a hotel manager, and how much did they stress that she's like a glamorous hotel manager and very powerful in her hotel? Um, (laughs) But this guy is going to kill her dad if she doesn't switch the Homeland Security guy's room so they can assassinate him. And, like, she's just struck with worry and panic and, like, I mean, maybe she's met him a few times in passing, but, like, I wouldn't give a fuck. I'd be, like, <laughs> and maybe that isn't something good to have on tape, uh, but I don't know. I think it's just very, like, you could tell it came out soon after 9-11 and that shared sense of nationalism is something that audiences at that time would just buy. Yeah, and the way they're planning to assassinate him is like throwing a missile into a building. <laughs> I know. So it was it was very like here's a mini 9/11 that she has to stop. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the horror takes place on a plane. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very post 9/11. Um yeah. But my interpretation of it was like yeah, there's that patriotic aspect. But also, I didn't feel like she was like, I can't let this happen to my country. I thought it was just mm-hmm. like, like she was especially horrified when um, Ripner revealed that he was going to uh, kill the family as well. Mm-hmm. Because she actually did make that call to yeah. save her dad. And then she meant, and then uh, Ripner mentioned like, oh, and his family's going to die. And she's like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. So I think like, a patriotism aspect could have sold the audience on it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that was really her character's motivation. True. So basically, I was having a hard time getting behind any character motivation until I talked to you and we decoded this. And it was basically that this character, uh, Lisa, had been sexually assaulted, raped in a parking lot, held at knife point, uh, stabbed even. And then this film becomes a metaphor for revenge on her sexual attacker. Yeah. And the thing that just, like, really baffled me about it is that the word rape, sexual assault, none of that is ever said in the film. Yeah. What was the rating of the movie? Um, That is a good question. Let me pull it up real quick. It was rated PG-13. There we go. There we go. Because I thought it was very strongly implied because she said that he was holding a, she was like, he held a knife to my body the whole time it was happening. I'm like, well, what do we think was happening? <laughs> I can be a bit of a lug sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, she's getting mugged. I don't know. And then the interaction between Lisa and Ripner is very, very sexualized. Yeah. It was in such a weird way too. Like. Even when it's revealed that she has this past, like the aggression and violence coming from the terrorist cell guy is so sexual. Yeah. Like it made me feel like, 
why is he being this way? He's he's a total creep. Mm-hmm. Just like obviously for the things that he does, but like it, it's it's done so well. Well, maybe not what things should be considered creepy, but like, did he also strike you as like slightly effeminate? Non-threatening, definitely. Oh, I thought he was like threatening in an effeminate way. Hmm. Like he he's got like a he's got a swoopy haircut. He's got the pouty lips. He's like, he obviously can physically overpower you, but there's also like this. But maybe he'd write you a poem too. I don't. I don't know. Like effeminate, like the way they would portray perverts in the media before the gay rights movement. Mm. Like that. That kind of effeminate. Mm-hmm. But only a little bit. Mostly just predatory. And when they meet, it's it's like a subverted meet cute. Mm-hmm. It felt very forced. Yeah. You know, and honestly, if he's just trying to corner this woman to pressure into doing something, why make with niceties? Why try and be like, oh, let's have some nachos, let's have a beer, blah, blah, blah. I think it's just to make her feel stupid. Mm. I, I think he enjoys it more if she got him to trust him. Or she got, he got her to trust him first. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, brings it back to the metaphor for sexual assault as well. Like. Yeah, and you can tell during that entire um like the interactions before they got on the plane and before he reveals his motives on the plane, she's like torn between kind of letting him in and being attracted to him and like being wary at Mm -hmm. certain points. Like you could tell um, when he overtakes the interaction where she's telling a customer to leave the poor flight attendant alone, Mm -hmm. she's kind of scared by how emphatic he is. Mm-hmm. Like, a little bit scared and a little bit impressed. It's, it's like, what's her relationship with masculine power? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what jumps out to mind specifically is that fight scene in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Where, like, there's a lot of positioning that looks sexual. Mm-hmm. And then even when they come out of the bathroom, no one is assuming that they were fighting. Everyone assumes they were fucking, except yeah. for that little kid. Mm-hmm. That little kid was awesome. Yeah, she was. <laughs> That moment where uh, he's running after her and she pulls out the suitcase to trip him, I literally applauded. Yeah, that was wonderful that she just knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that brings us uh, to another theme that I noticed, and you know, in keeping with the fact that this is a metaphor for sexual assault, you know, the scene in the climactic end where she's there to save her dad, uh, but then you know she's running from this you know, metaphorical rapist through her childhood bedroom and, like, using weapons from her teen years, like her lacrosse stick, and fight, like, basically, it felt like fighting him with the positive aspects of her childhood. Yeah. And then, just when she's cornered and you think it's going to go badly, dad shows up and dad kills him and shoots him and is the winner and saves her. Um how did you feel about that scene? I hated okay, that good. he I'm kills like, her. <laughs> I, that he kills him. Why am I fucking up pronouns all the time? I, I know gender is fluid, but it's very defined in this movie. Um, I hate it that the dad kills Ripner. Because mm-hmm. it, it's just ridiculous. Because she actually did have the opportunity to kill him. Mm-hmm. You could tell she, she shot him once and was hesitating with shooting him again. And then the dad gets a hold of the gun or whatever. And it's like, it's like I don't believe... That she has this hesitation. I think, like, the last minute assist from a man is a trope, mm-hmm. first of all. I don't think it needed to be in this movie, except if we want to go with this purity metaphor bullshit. And second, 
She's already jabbed him in the throat with a pen. Yeah. At close range. Has, like, seriously beaten him as hard as she can with a series of objects. She's been, like, fighting for her life and clearly, like, aiming to kill. And the idea that she's going to have this, like, great hesitation because she can't kill because she's a woman (laughs) at the last second, I don't buy that shit. That's they wouldn't let her kill him, and so they handed it over to the dad. That's how I felt about it, too. Like, you let her come this far. Let her finish the job. Mm-hmm. And plus, like, just, you know, speaking from the metaphor in the film, it would be so much more um, fulfilling to have that sense of closure. Yes. The scene that made the movie stick in my mind the most is before she jabs him in the throat with a pen, she tells him about the parking lot rape and says, Ever since then, I've been trying to convince myself of one thing over and over again. And he goes, that it was beyond your control. And she says, no, that it would never happen again. And that's when she jabs him with the pen. And that theme of empowerment over your fate, that she can protect herself. And of course, that's a fantasy. But like, let's live out that fantasy. Yeah, it's a movie. Come on, give it to us. That it's not that she is absolved because it was beyond her control, although she is. Back with the parking lot thing and then with this uh, terrorist plot, she can create the outcome she wants by being awesome. And the fact that they took that closure from her and mm-hmm. had to give it to her dad, who's been completely useless up to this point. Yeah. And do they I was sleep? just like, come on. But yeah, also I found it really interesting that when she stabbed him, it's in the windpipe. And so he he isn't, like, really decapacitated in any way, except he can't talk, which made him... I think it was an interesting choice to do to your villain because it minimizes how audiences can perceive him and interact with him. So, And in that way, I felt very strongly that he was, you know, the metaphor for the unknown rapist because you don't know who what he's thinking because he can't talk to her. And if he does talk, it's very like, (sighs) yeah. So you just know that he is aggressively coming for her. Yeah. It was so ridiculous that he pulled the pen out and then put a scarf around his neck like that's going to replace it. It was so loose, too. I was like, no, come on. Yeah. But that's minor. And yeah, it's, it's weird that she stabbed him in the windpipe rather than like, Jugular, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mostly impressed with how fast she got off the plane. Oh, she was incredibly impressive. <laughs> yeah. there, there, it, it's because I was so invested in the movie that I was like, oh, you should have done this differently. Mm. But of course, that, that would have been like, okay, well, movie over. Mm-hmm. Um, the I other mean. thing was, after he slammed her head. Oh, God, I guess yeah. The, that yeah. scene was so fucked up. It and was. It, oh, man. I was like, I wonder if she could get out of this by just pretending to be brain damaged. Oh. If she can't make the call. It would have been a really boring movie, though. (laughs) Yeah. He slammed it pretty hard. It would have been believable. Yeah. And it was so scary that no one around them noticed at all. And it Mm -hmm. was just, oh, she's sleepy. She had a big day. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I kept thinking more was going to happen with the woman with the Dr. Phil book, too. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of dropped. Because they had so much interaction going on uh, between Lisa and her, and then just nothing. He swiped the book and nothing came out of it. Well, what I thought was interesting was, like, 
Ripner's contempt for anything emotional or like like he was making fun of her for having the Dr. Phil book. Mm-hmm. He was talking about like you need to make this call and stop worrying about your like female emotional driven blah, 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 Yeah, blah. you need male driven logic. He said that a few times. Uh-huh. It's like, "Oh, fuck you." He's not just a misogynist. It was an interesting uh extension of when he was pretending to be nice to her how exceptionally sensitive he was i did enjoy though when he was talking to her about why are you getting so worked up this is just your job make the call and do your job i do my job i'm an international terrorist Mm, you do your job you're a hotel manager i mean that's bad hotel management (laughs) this is very true that's what a lot of my perception was. Not that she necessarily cared so much about um, the deputy director of Homeland Security, although she did care. Mm-hmm. It was just like, no, I don't, I don't do that. That's. It seemed to be like a, a moral thing that was partially tied to the importance she puts on her job. Yeah, and I guess having also worked in a hotel, I just couldn't relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> but she manages it. Right? She's she's got some pride in her work or whatever the fuck. That's true. Have you ever felt pride in any job? Uh, I mean, comedy. Sometimes I get paid for it. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember this past weekend when we had run out of coffee filters and it, like, started to snow. That was the first snow. Ugh. I didn't have, like, appropriate clothing. I, like, begged my manager to let me go buy coffee filters because Mm. we were not going to have coffee. Um, so that's some pride in my work that I cared enough to go out and do that and like actively ask when it wouldn't have come down on me. But Mm -hmm. I think it was really just not wanting the hassle of all the servers coming up and being like, where's coffee? Yeah. (laughs) Having to deal with everyone yelling at you. (laughs) When it was not my fault at all. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you can only really feel pride in your work when you feel... Like, either your work is important or that you are respected at work. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally took pride in my programming job until it got bad. Mm. Like, before my boss started being super weird, I was like, I want to make the best Android app that I can for this. And, and mm-hmm. I, I understand the concept. It's just, it's a very tenuous thing mm-hmm. because generally people work for money. And I totally get putting in the minimum to just get your paycheck if you're not um, attached to what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that was my introduction to the workforce. It was like, you are my boss, you will not learn my name, and I will eat everything in sight when you're not looking. <laughs> that is the best attitude. <laughs> uh, but I did, I enjoyed him bringing that up because I feel like it was a really good metaphor for like the complacency within our economies that allows evil transactions to happen. And by that I mean like, you know, People love buying cheap shit from Target, but they hate sweatshops. But we, we both watched this movie on Amazon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think in that aspect of, uh, you know, what is the terrorist's name again? Jessica? Uh, Jack Ripner. Jackson yeah. Ripner. Jackson Ripner. Yeah. I think, you know, in Ripner's perspective, he's okay with that because that's your job. Just get out there and do your job. It doesn't matter if it's evil or... That's what he says, but Mm -hmm. you can tell he's pretty evil. That's true. He does enjoy his work. Yeah. (laughs) So what were your favorite moments in this film? Uh, I loved that one where the little girl pulls out the suitcase. Mm -hmm. And then 
that's as uh, Lisa's trying to flee and get away. She's just stabbed Ripner in the throat, and then the little girl throws the suitcase out, so he stripped and he can't get her. It was so good. It was um, great. I love that she wrote 18F or whatever the seat was, has bomb and soap on the uh, bathroom mirror. Yeah, just, that was, she was smart. Yeah. I really, really liked her character. Um, and that was probably more Rachel McAdams' acting than anything else because she plays like a real person. Mm-hmm. The plot is so over the top that it would be easy to be, it would be easy to just sort of transform into like a super cunning action hero type. But instead, she's like a smart but real person dealing with these circumstances. You're right. She did give that off. And I feel like it made you feel for her. Oh, yeah. So you had mentioned like Rachel McAdam when we were talking earlier. Is that someone whose films you like a lot? Or I never seek out anything to watch with her. But there was like an audition video of her that went viral. Um, she was like auditioning for The Notebook and she was like, genuinely able to make herself cry during the audition she was just nailing it she was great in mean girls um it's, it's just really cool that there's um an actor who's that i should say actress because it's female specific who is like conventionally gorgeous and could probably get roles on that basis but then is also extremely talented mm-hmm. and i say that as somebody who has no impulse to ever sit through the notebook but <laughs> <laughs> yeah never seen it but mm-hmm. I think she's great. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if there was like a Rachel club or something. No, typically we hate other Rachels. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, I didn't know it's this. like, you know how women hate other women? Mm-hmm. Rachels hate other Rachels. <laughs> <laughs> what Rachel do you hate more than anyone else? I just keep my distance from them so much <laughs> that. few I don't mind I just wish they had a different name yeah I could see that I don't meet a lot of Kristen's um there are quite a number in the comedy scene actually Kristen Lundberg Kristen Toomey uh I guess outside of comedy I don't meet many Kristen's no I think my favorite scene in this movie I think it was really ingenious how the assassins foiled the uh cops that came to check out their boat and they had the missile, like, in a safe off the side. Yeah. And then pulled it up in mm-hmm. the water. Uh, and then the other scene I loved is, like, where the assassin is headed toward... Wait. She's going back to the house, and she's got her SUV that she's driving, and she sees the guy that's going to kill her dad, and she just, like, mows him down. That was so good. Because <laughs> yeah. he was shooting at her. Yeah. That was pretty badass. And she's just like... <laughs> Deadly weapon I'm driving. Let's use it. Mm-hmm. I want to hear a- about, about like, 15-year-old Rachel who saw this scene and what you felt with the pen scene. I think I was probably just like... <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I'm very reactive. Uh-huh. I, I, don't have a specific mem- I don't have a specific memory of anything in the film other than that conversation before... Oh, do you mean the actual stabbing or the scene uh, leading up to it? I think both. Okay. It's very yeah, powerful. It, it, yeah, it was the difference between it was beyond your control versus that it would never happen again. That's what really stuck with me for reasons I can't fully articulate. Mm-hmm. Because it's not the best writing ever. Like, it's, it's, it's a pretty obvious and clunky point, even though there's nothing wrong with that. But, like, it, it really stuck with me 
the difference between um, not being morally culpable for something and how do I deal with this emotionally and no, I'm going to exercise control over my own environment and sort of actually deal with the vulnerability of trying to take control because then when you fail, that hurts so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess specifically I was asking, because I remember being that age, like 14, 15, and don't laugh at me, but uh, <laughs> seeing the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and just having this feeling of like, fuck yeah, I'm a woman. <laughs> uh, it made me feel very empowered and that, uh, you know, like, not that violence is good, but if you needed to defend yourself, you know, there was Christy Swanson on screen doing it. And as a, as a young woman that like really put something in my mind that is still there, still a Buffy TV show, movie, all that. I never saw it. Really? I've seen very few things. Wow. We need to watch Buffy together. Did you see Ghostbusters? No. No. Neither of them. (laughs) I did. I had a moment during the new Ghostbusters as well with the Kate McKinnon scene where she's just like fearlessly kicking ass. Of course. And then it made me realize like how few scenes like that I had seen as a child. Mm Mm-hmm. Like... I couldn't think of any where it was just a woman not concentrating on looking hot or wearing makeup, uh, but just like fucking defending herself and saving the day. And I thought Ghostbusters was pretty cool because of that. I want to see it. And Kate McKinnon is awesome. Oh, she's so wonderful. It's just, it was in the theater and I don't see things in theaters unless somebody specifically asked me and I'll check it out. I, I, I realize it's a cultural touchstone oh yeah i just i also was super irritated at all the mras that came out of the woodwork to be like they're ruining our childhood (laughs) shut up yeah it's like how charmed was your childhood (laughs) or how bad was it that you need this movie so much (laughs) that would have been a fun argument to talk about like when hillary clinton was running for president (laughs) Men have been president my entire life. You're ruining my childhood. It's tradition. (laughs) I find this very triggering that you want to change this. Oh, man. So Trump presidency. Yeah, boo. I, uh, I don't feel like I can see anything past January 20th. Like, it doesn't feel real to me. Unfortunately, that'll happen anyway. Mm hmm. I was so upset about it i can't even the only thing i could do right now is like my bit about it which would be douchey as hell so i won't (laughs) but otherwise i don't have anything extemporaneously to say it's just like god damn it's so upsetting because i don't think this reflects the will of the people really at all and we know that elections are rigged uh are rigged and we don't do anything about it Mm mm-hmm and, and nobody's ever going to really do anything about it because power likes to preserve itself. Exactly. Yeah, I was driving home the other day and I was at a stoplight and I just had this moment of like, we have a reality television star as a president. And it just like kind of washed over me for a second. It's like, fuck. It's so tacky. The only thing on his agenda is to be loved. That's it. 
Yeah. And soak up all that public attention. Exactly. Just like the, the people he's put in his cabinet are so much more overtly evil than he is. Oh, yeah. But because he's so easily controlled by uh, just f- stroking his ego, that's why he likes Putin. Mm-hmm. They're going to ruin everything. Agreed. I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but like, do you have any feelings in your gut as to like how this new coming age will influence art or comedy? It's going to make it bad. You think so? Yeah. I mean, like, there will be some bright spots to it, but I mean, geez, when I was under, under the Bush administration, I thought political comedy was like the best comedy because they were right yeah yeah because because they were like taking bush down and all that stuff and it's it's like yeah it was it was a relief to see that every night Mm -hmm. because you could feel like oh yeah i'm in the right i'm not going crazy Mm -hmm. like this really is as ridiculous as it seems but that's still what's happening Mm -hmm. so all all we have is this comfort in being right and sure it's comedic but, like, I think comedy on average is so much better when it's not dealing with, like, really obvious problems. Yeah. And what I've noticed, too, like, I loved that shit back in the day. Like, Garofalo and David Cross. and Daily Show. Daily Show, yes. Now, going back and re-watching, or rather, re-listening to some of those albums, I don't think it holds up. Mm. Like, because we're not living in that moment. Yeah. It's like, I think comedy was great under Obama. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I guess I brought that up because I'm also really sick of all the people that are like, oh, well, you're a comedian, at least now with Trump in office, you'll have lots of material. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Like, there was a great uh, tweet about that, which is like, Trump is good for comedy the same way a bus crash is great for a hospital. Oh, yeah. That is a very accurate quote. So good. Sorry, I didn't mean to make us all depressed. <laughs> Facebook was, like, my number one comfort that night. Oh, yeah. Oh. Just watching the news, and I was like, I need to feel like I'm with my community, right? It was it was just, like, experiencing that together in mass was like, well, at least I'm not alone in the world. That's true. The next day, I had to get away from it, though. Mm-hmm. It was too much. It was too sad. It was very, very sad. But I do hope and think that now the left has an opportunity to build a like really vibrant coalition like one we've never actually seen before. And that's what I tell myself to sleep at night. I thought it was um, inspiring that the protesters at Standing Rock oh, were yeah. successful. That was amazing. Yeah. And that's an issue I cared about, but like it wasn't like the... It, it, it was more meaningful to me as an example than as the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a very privileged thing to say. No, it's but, true, though. We need those moments of justice to, yeah. like, sustain us. And yeah, and just th- that protesting can work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, because I was having this feeling lately that protesting is such a privilege in the way that, sure, you're out there and you're expressing your personal opinion, but it's almost like you've been given this space to do that where it really doesn't affect social change mm-hmm. all the time like you know oh every time there's a meeting of the g8 outside people go crazy mm-hmm. but people are still inside that building manipulating the world's economies and nothing changes there 
And you're absolutely right. Standing Rock was such a, especially now, I feel like we just needed that moment to know that we're still, you know, we could still make change. Yeah. And the fact that the veterans that went are now going to Flint, Michigan. I thought that was. That's great. That was great news to hear. Back to your coalition point. It's frustrating to see Democrats just at each other's throats now. Mm-hmm. I was at family Thanksgiving, and that was what we talked about. That my dad and my brother were like, you know, I, this is the problem. You know, identity politics is a big distraction, and you want to really build a coalition, you you got to focus on the economic. That's the real thing. I'm like, well, there is no like one real thing. Mm-hmm. There was a great article about how what is frequently called identity politics is actually better termed civil rights <laughs> exactly i saw a tweet the other day about like oh identity politics makes you uncomfortable whiteness is an identity and whiteness is part of identity politics and i like that idea of like because whiteness is always considered just like the norm uh-huh. you know like people don't realize like that's just as much of an identity and the sense of privilege that comes along with that people are so unaware of yeah, I like your point. Thank you. I feel like Democrats are constantly fighting over what utopia should look like <laughs> instead of preventing the apocalypse. Yeah. Or like providing a roadmap to get to that utopia. <laughs> get to any utopia. It's, 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 it's like our political beliefs are accessories mm-hmm. to show like, well, this, this is what I think the world should be. Look at me thinking that. Mm-hmm. And you know, we used to be the party of unions, and now it's Republicans who can really band together to do shit like break unions. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like, as someone who has worked on a lot of political campaigns, like the Democratic Party took labor unions for granted. Oh yeah, like they don't do anything for us. They didn't pass the Employee Free Choice Act. They barely made any gains on the Wagner Act or anything with workers' rights. Mm-hmm. Right to work is sweeping the country. And yet we turn out for them in full force. Like, if you're a shitty Democrat, I'm not knocking doors for you. Yeah. It's just the alternative is worse, and it's, it sucks so much. It's, it's like how Democrats take people of color for granted. Mm-hmm. Like that's, Same. that's what my dad and my brother were talking about. Like, you were focusing too much on identity politics. It's like, if you don't advocate for civil rights issues, then... They're not going to keep voting for you, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Especially if you actively dismiss their interests. It's ridiculous. I I agree that economic is important and it can be unifying, but not if you are actively shitting on things that only um, affect women or people of color or gay people or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, just to be completely honest, a lot of times economic language is couched in very... um nationalist protectionist language mm-hmm. that demonizes foreigners it really so yeah. like a lot of times when people were like it's about the economy like <laughs> well in a certain <laughs> way it is and another way it's very racist yeah my dad watched lou dobbs all the time when i was in high school and i believe he was watching it for the right reasons like i think he really believed in the protectionist policies and all of this and this is what but when Lou Dobbs started getting explicitly racist mm-hmm. just a couple years later and lost his show, I was like, yeah, of course that's what his motivation was. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you really think he's not racist when he's talking about Mexicans taking our jobs every freaking night on TV? Yeah, and just getting people so worked up. 
That's the one thing I really worry about in the coming political climate is like what these people now feel they have license to do. Yeah, we're all fucked. (laughs) So any final thoughts on Red Eye? I guess to tie it to what we were just talking about, it's, it's interesting to see that's a piece of art or whatever that got made the last time the country was being run by a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Right? And everybody's anxiety is around that. And I'm wondering if we're going to have similar um, high anxiety, high tension, pseudo-nationalistic, but not really work like that, with Trump being president, or if there's going to be more of a pushback against nationalism because that's what got us here in the first place. Oh, that's a good question. I hope it's the latter. Same. Mm-hmm. What would you like to plug? January 5th, I'm going to be headlining Undergrad Underground at the Playground Theater at 10 p.m. And then on Saturday, so January 7th, I will be headlining Guest List Comedy at Ancient Cycles. Nice. And those are all Chicago shows. So if you're yes. in the area, you should definitely come out and check out Rachel. She is hilarious. Thank you. Uh, Twitter handle? At Rachel M. Comedy, because my actual name was taken. Ah, boo to that. Yep. (laughs) All right, that's been Rachel McCartney, very funny, smart, and talented Chicago comedian. I've been Kristen Ryan, and this has been Bloody Mary. Have a good night.